my great pleasure and an honor to be introducing our guest speaker this afternoon, Graham Harmon. Dr. Graham Harmon, I should say. And Graham is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of uh, American University in Cairo. And in the semester just gone, he was the visiting associate professor of metaphysics and the philosophy of science at the University of Amsterdam. And he's an expert in the philosophy of Martin Heidegger, the German phenomenologist. And he's written three books dealing with Heidegger. Tool Being, Heidegger and the Metaphysics of Objects, which was 2002. Guerrilla Metaphysics, which was uh, uh, done in 2005. Sorry, there's a subtitle there. Phenomenology and the Carpentry of Things. And Heidegger Explained, From Phenomenon to Thing, which was a 2007 publication. But he's also developing his own object-orientated philosophy, which has already become itself a subject of study by a number of doctoral researchers in such prestigious universities as Cambridge, London School of Economics, Bristol, and UCLA. So I'm delighted that Graham has accepted our invitation to speak at the Arts Institute, and for a number of reasons. I've read Heidegger Explained and was really impressed with the way he was able to make the work of such a notoriously difficult author accessible to a non-specialist such as myself. And I've also had the privilege to read the manuscript for his forthcoming publication entitled Prince of Networks, Bruno Latour's Empirical Metaphysics, which is on the philosophy of another intriguing thinker of our times who's deeply interested in the nature of objects. And so as objects, are what we as artists, designers, makers do. I'm really extremely pleased to present a philosopher to you who's passionate about objects and who is best placed to shed light on what Heidegger's origin of the work of our essay means for an object-oriented perspective. So I'm particularly thankful, this is my final comment, to Graham for deciding to come to Bournemouth because he's actually caught quite a bad cold. So, if you'll just join me in warmly welcoming Graham Harmon. So maybe grimacing in pain the whole time. Please forgive me if I am. Um, <clears throat> this lecture is not going to presuppose too much knowledge of Heidegger. I imagine some of you have had some experience with some of his essays, but I'm going to try to assume no knowledge of Heidegger at all and build it up from a fairly basic level. And I'll be talking about the origin of the work of art, his famous essay from 1935. Uh, an origin for Heidegger in this context doesn't mean the historical origin. It means something like the essence, he tells us. What is it really that makes a work of art something different from other things? And it's actually quite a complicated lecture. He gives us a, uh, quite a history of various philosophical concepts, of, of what various Greek terms mean. I'm not going to cover all those in detail today. I'm just going to pick out a few basic features of the article and take them in a direction that Heidegger would never have approved of if he were here. So Heidegger would not endorse most of what I'm going to say today. Um, strife. Uh, for Heidegger, the artwork is about strife. It is strife between earth and world. And I've got a slide coming up here in a little while on that. But um, uh, somehow it's... Oh, no, I do have a slide. Earth and worlds are somehow uh, together in the artwork. They're together in other things, too, but in other things they are somehow not in strife with one another, not in, not in visible conflict with one another. And uh, let me just read you a few paragraphs 
from this essay. I usually hate doing this, but I need to give you a, a taste of what the mood is like in this essay. Here are, I'm still painting the shoes. Heidegger says, from the dark opening of the worn insides of the shoes, the toilsome tread of the workers stares forth. In the stiffly rugged heaviness of the shoes, there is the accumulated tenacity of the peasant's slow trudge through the far-spreading and ever-uniform furrows of the field swept by our raw winds. On the leather lie the dampness and richness of the soil. Under the soles slides the loneliness of the field path as evening falls. In the shoes vibrates the silent call of the earth, its quiet gift of the ripening grain and its unexplained self-refusal in the fallow desolation of the wintry fields. This equipment is pervaded by uncomplaining worry as to the certainty of bread, the wordless joy of having once more withstood want, the trembling before the impending childbed and shivering at the surrounding menace of death. This equipment belongs to the earth, and it is protected in the world of the peasant woman. From out of this protected belonging, the equipment itself rises to its resting within itself. Okay, just to give a sense of what Heidegger's rhetoric is like. Some find it beautiful, some find it's quite unbearably pompous. Um, here's another example he uses from the essay, a Greek temple. Um, standing there, the building rests on the rocky grounds. This resting of the work draws up out of the rock the obscurity of that rock's bulky yet spontaneous supports. Standing there, the building holds its ground against the storm raging above it, and so first makes the storm itself manifest in its violence. The lustering gleam of the stone, though itself apparently glowing only by the grace of the sun, yet first brings to radiance the light of the day, the breath of the sky, the darkness of the night. The temple's firm towering makes visible the invisible space of air. The steadfastness of the work contrasts with the surge of the surf, and its own repose brings out the raging of the sea. Tree and grass, eagle and bull, snake and cricket, first enter into their distinctive shapes, and thus come to appear as what they are. The Greeks early called this emerging and rising in itself and in all things physis. It illuminates also that on which and in which man bases his dwelling. We call this ground the earth. Okay, and one last thing I wanted to quote. Um... talking about how in tools, the material in the tool vanishes in favor of whatever purpose the tool is serving. But he says that in the artwork, the material of which things are made somehow becomes visible. And here's the the paragraph where he tries to explain this. The temple work in setting up a world does not cause the material to disappear, but rather causes it to come forth for the very first time and to come out into the open region of the work's world. The rock comes to bear and rests, and so first becomes rock. Metals come to glitter and shimmer, colors to glow, tones to sing, the word to say. All this comes forth as the work sets itself back into the massiveness and heaviness of stone, into the firmness and pliancy of woods, into the hardness and luster of metal, into the lighting and darkening of color, into the clang of tone, and into the naming power of the words. That into which the work sets itself back and which it causes to come forth in the setting back of itself we call the earth. Earth is that which comes forth and shelters. Earth, irreducibly spontaneous, is effortless and untiring. Upon the earth and in it, historical man grounds his dwelling in the world. In setting up a world, the work sets forth the earth. This setting forth must be thought here in the strict sense of the words. The work moves the earth itself into the open region of a world and keeps it there. The work lets the earth be at earth. Okay, now if you didn't follow all of that, that's fine. I just wanted to give you a sense of what his, what his rhetoric is like when he discusses world and earth. I'm going to try to explain them as clearly as I can. Uh, the best place to start is to say that simply for Heidegger, Earth is that which is concealed and hidden from us. World is that which is visible in this phase of his philosophy. Earth, he talks about concealing, sheltering, preserving. It's something that we don't have visible access to, but it's there in the things. Whereas world is what does manifest itself to us. 
And he somehow thinks that in artworks, there's a special tension between those two sides, that you don't find in other kinds of, of objects. Um, that's somewhat questionable, but he's at least onto something there, I think. Um, and I just want to say one more thing before I step back and, and develop this all, which is that Heidegger also will say that poetry is the primary form of arts for him. Uh, because for him, language, at least poetic language, is able to point at something while still not pretending that it's making it completely visible. Uh, proper names would be a good example of this. If you call out somebody's name, you're summoning them in a way. You're, you're, you're calling upon that person to respond to you. And yet the name itself doesn't tell us everything there is to know about the person. There's still something in that person that's hidden, that's never quite fully accessible to us. It's always mysterious to us. And Heidegger thinks that poetic language does this in a way that even normal language cannot do. And he says this, the poetic language then is the, the kind of model for what all art does. It makes things visible without making them entirely visible. Something in the, in the artwork always recedes from us or is, is veiled from us, is sheltered from us, is concealed from us. These are all famous Heidegger words. Well, let me take a step back uh, into the development of Heidegger's philosophy. Here's Edmund Husserl, who was Heidegger's teacher, who founded phenomenology. And the point of phenomenology, I would say the main point of it was to carve out a space for philosophy that would resist the encroachment of natural sciences. So in, say, the 1870s, 1880s, it looked to some people like philosophy might disappear in favor of experimental psychology or in favor of even neurology. Uh, it seemed like the sciences were advancing so rapidly and having such successes that there was going to be nothing left for philosophy to do anymore. Husserl's way of, of dealing with this situation was to say that philosophy needs to first simply describe very accurately and rigorously what we experience without reducing it by way of scientific theories. And so if you hear a door slam, you should simply be describing in minute detail what it's like to hear the door slam, what the different layers of sound are, what the inferences are that I make when I hear the door slam. To develop a theory right away of how the sound waves go through the air and vibrate your eardrum and send chemicals up your nervous system, this is secondary for Husserl. Because those theories only make sense if we begin with a normal, everyday life experience of hearing a door slam. Um, now, one problem with this, of course, is that Husserl is accused of idealism. He's accused of shutting himself off in a world that is not connected to the real world. By, uh, by shifting focus away from real objects, doing real things, having real causal impact on each other, and simply describing what's inside of our minds, he's accused sometimes of falling into a sort of psychology. And so he's talking about objects, but he's talking about objects insofar as we perceive them. The trees that we see, the, the songs that we hear, not about objective things in themselves outside of human experience. Now, uh, Heidegger, the tool of analysis, the most famous thing in any of his career, most famous written passage in his entire career. It comes early in being in time, his major work. And this is both an appreciation and a critique of Husserl, his teacher. Heidegger's point is that we do not normally deal with things as appearances in consciousness. Uh, normally, things are invisible to us. We're simply taking them for granted. We're relying on them. Uh, the floor right now, you were relying on the floor to be solid and to be a barrier and to not allow you to fall into the, the cellar of the building. And you were probably not thinking of it until, until I mentioned it to you. Uh, oxygen in the air. You're breathing the oxygen. You're using it. You're relying on it, taking it for granted. Uh, unless you have problems with your lungs, you're not going to start noticing that. Uh, the act of swallowing, swallowing all the time and not noticing it. I'm noticing it now because I have a terrible throat infection and every two seconds I'm feeling this piercing pain as I talk. Uh, things normally become visible to you when they're failing. This is Heidegger's point. Uh, if you rely on a bus, 
routes or on a house or on uh, solid grounds or on a, uh, a smoothly functioning international financial system, only when these things fail do you tend to notice them. Usually things are not visible in our consciousness. Things are taken for granted. And this is what tools mean for Heidegger. And so you can already see we have the, the difference between Husserl's objects, which are visible in consciousness and are to be described, and Heidegger's objects, which are hidden from us and taken for granted. We already have something like this tension between Earth and worlds that's going to come out in Heidegger's origin, on the, origin of the work of art essay. Because the, the objects Heidegger's talking about, like tools, are hidden, they're concealed, they're sheltered, they're veiled, any of those terms. The kind that Husserl is talking about are the kind that are visible to us, and we take account of them explicitly. Okay. Um, go to the next slide. This, this twofold conflict between hidden and visible in Heidegger's work becomes complicated a number of years later in his career with this mysterious concept known as the fourfold. Das Gefährt is the German term, Earth, Sky, Gods, and Mortals. Well, in the artwork essay, we had an opposition between Earth and World. It was a simple interplay between two things. Now, all of a sudden, we had four. And the question has always been, where did this come from? How did, the, how did Heidegger's almost monotonous interplay, the, the dark force and the visible force, uh, suddenly become a more complicated fourfold structure? And uh, very few scholars attempted to tackle this. I think I did solve it. Uh, guarded optimism to say that I think I did solve it. What does it... What does the, the fourfold come from when you start with the twofold? Well, we have to go back to Husserl again. Because Husserl was not just an idealist. Husserl was not just saying we're cut off from the real world and we can only describe what's in our own minds. Within our own minds, there's something very interesting going on. Uh, there's an object, there are objects there within our own minds, and they are never completely visible by all of their qualities at once. Let me give you an example. Uh, this podium. I am seeing it from this side. You're seeing it from that side. I can circle it and look at it from various different angles. I can look at it with different amounts of lights. We can raise the amount of light in the room. We can lower the amount of light in the room. I can look at the podium in different moods, and that will change how I view it. Um, depending on what I'm using it for, I will view this differently. The podium is there from the start, but you're never seeing all of it at once. You're seeing always simply one face of this at once, and you're inferring that the rest of it is there. But you're never going to be in a position where you can see all of it simultaneously. Um, the object is something there distinct from all of its various features, which are sort of pasted under the top of it, and you never have quite an adequate view of the thing. Well, so what you have is you have, even within consciousness, Husserl is restricting himself to the human consciousness and describing what goes on there, but even within consciousness, you have a distinction between the objects that we see, which are never fully visible, and the, men, and the many different qualities by which they are visible. Well, the same thing must also happen on the level of the concealed underground that we never see, that's always veiled or sheltered from us. Why? Because each of those individual things, in reality, are different from each other, which means they must all have different qualities. And so you have the same, uh, there's a kind of dual repeated at two levels of the world. You've got within consciousness, there's, there's an object here manifested by various different qualities, and in the world itself, you also have that, that same opposition. This is where I think the fourfold comes from. Now, I'm going to use this to try to comment on Heidegger's artwork essay a bit. Um, there are a couple of problems, I think, with his artwork essay, even in the context of his own career. One problem is that this strife he talks about seems to always exist. It doesn't seem like it would be something characteristic only of artworks, and so I think it fails in that sense. He talks about the strife between the 
what's hidden in a thing and what's visible in the thing? Well, that's true even of you know, this note cards. Um, I can see certain aspects of it. I can see the whiteness of it, the blue lines of it, the size of it, and yet there are certain features of this card that are not totally visible to me. The chemical structure, and I could, yeah, I, I could theoretically explore this card and find out new things about it. I don't think we'd call this, well, I guess you could make this an artwork if you framed it the right way, but normally we wouldn't call it that. Um, and so I don't think it makes much sense to, to do as Heidegger says in this essay and say that it's, it's about strife. He says a little more than that, actually. He says it's strife as strife. It's strife that becomes visible as strife. Strife is always there, but in the artwork it becomes especially visible. I still don't think that's quite enough, uh, because it's something pretty universal. It's something we see in any object, that there's this tension between the hidden part of it and the part that's visible to us. That's one problem. The other problem is that this fourfold structure complicates things uh, for Heidegger. We've got two parts of the concealed world and the two parts of the visible world. It seems that he, ha- he would have to rewrite his artwork essay to take account of his later developments in his philosophy, and he didn't do it. Um, okay, so two kinds of objects. We could, we, if you want, we could call these things, or we could call these images, or simulacra. The terms that usually get used are a little too technical. That's why I want to drop them. They call these intentional objects or ideal objects, and they call these real objects. We can call these things because they're real things, and we can call these images. And on the level of things and on the level of images, there's a tension uh, between the the thing as a whole and its various qualities. Okay, so now I will introduce a concept that I call the lure. What would happen if you were able to split a thing from its qualities? I mean, obviously, we already sort of do that. There's a, if I'm able to see this podium as one thing, and yet I'm able to circle around it and see it from various different colors and shapes of it at various different times, there's already, obviously, a difference between the unity of the thing and its ver- the various features by which it can manifest itself at different times. What if you were able to split those apart from one another so that the thing, as a unit, somehow seemed to become visible in separation from its various traits? The term I coined for this is allure. Uh, I like this term because it implies something beautiful and fascinating and seductive, and it also contains a reference to, the, to illusion, because it's alluding to something that can never quite become present. And I would say this is a better account of what artworks do. You're somehow, within the, the world of the image, splitting the thing from its traits. Um, let me give a couple of examples of this that are not art examples to show how wide a phenomenon this really is. Proper names is one I've already mentioned. Uh, what, is, what is so strange about hearing your name called by somebody? Well, it's that the name points to you, it points, summons who you are, it, it indicates you in distinction from others, and yet it never quite really grasps the depths of you. It's pointing at something there deeper than all the... If I made up a list of, pro, of 25 pages of qualities, properties, and facts that are known about you to everyone, this would not quite get at the essence of who you are there's still going to be something there a little bit more. And the proper name somehow gets at this. It summons the totality of you without trying to reduce it to a list of traits. This is very important in the philosophy of language because there was a tradition early on with people like Frege and Russell to say that a name is just a shorthand for a list of properties that we know about a thing. <laughs> so that if we say um, Martin Heidegger, this name is simply an abbreviation for every fact that is known about Martin Heidegger. The problem with this is that we are often wrong in the facts we think we know about Martin Heidegger or any other person. And when, when, when these facts turn out to be wrong, we don't say that I was using the name Martin Heidegger incorrectly. We say, no, I was using the name Martin Heidegger to refer correctly to this person. I was simply wrong about some of the features. 
So somehow the name is pointing at something there that we can't quite specify that can survive. I can point, my, my point of this person can survive any modification at all in the things that we think we know about the person. So that's kind of a separation between the thing and its qualities, if you name it. Disappointments. Uh, you expect something from somebody and they don't deliver on it. Uh, somehow this creates a tension between what you thought the person was and what they actually are. And so what the person actually is is now this disappointing kernel of the hearts that has become separated from the qualities that you thought that that person had. Uh, I would say courage. I've written about this elsewhere. That courage, in a way, is knowing that you are somehow separate from the things that happen to you and so that it doesn't matter if you're destroyed by a decision that you make. You're willing to accept the consequences. There is something in you that's deeper than whatever your fate turns out to be. And so I would say that does something similar. Um, I would also say uh, what they call paradigm shifts in any field of knowledge. When a, when a brand new concept appears in something like chemistry or physics, uh, this, this new concept has a, has a kind of seductive power to it that is deeper than any of the features that are known about it. The features that are known about it are sometimes contradictory, and people stay committed to that concept anyway. Relativity. You could say the theory of relativity is a kind of object, even though there are still certain paradoxes about it. All of its qualities can't be reconciled with the qualities of other theories, like quantum theory. Yet there's something there in relativity theory that is, that is drawing people, and it's just, there's a certain power to it, a certain seductiveness to it. And so there, too, I think you're seeing a, a real tension between the object and the ways in which the object is described. Uh, well, metaphor. Heidegger doesn't talk too much about metaphor origin of the work of our essay, but uh, there's a famous essay by Max Black about metaphor, where he, he considers a fairly dull metaphor, which is man as a wolf. And the conclusion he comes up with is that what happens in that case is you have the wolf quality stripped from the wolf, and they kind of go into orbits around this human core. And so there, too, you have a separation between what we normally think we know about a human and these various qualities of the human, which are now borrowed from a wolf. Um, with all these examples, I'm trying to say that I think that it can't be a tension between world and earth and Heidegger's mo- earth and world and Heidegger's model. It has to be a tension between mortals and sky. It has to take place entirely on the level of the image, where the image itself is split in half between the unity of it and the various qualities by which it's manifested. It somehow gives you the impression, the allure gives you the impression that you're able to directly contact the thing itself in the sense of an image, even though you can't ever see all of its qualities at once. Well, the reason this is interesting, I think, is because then aren't there similar tensions in all the other directions on this fourfold? So we have kind of a possibility of a general philosophical model here. If this difference here is what gives us artworks in Heidegger's accounts, what about this? What are, is there anything that happens in reality that splits a thing from its own qualities, not on the level of images and consciousness, but on the level of things in themselves? And I would say, yes, that is causation. That is physical causation. Billiard balls are always used as the great philosophical example of cause. One, one billiard ball smacks into another. Can you know for sure that the, the second ball is going to move? And so I think uh, by paying close attention to what Heidegger does in the artwork essay, we could maybe shed some new light on causation, and I'm going to get into that in a second. Uh, uh, philosophy has, has thrown out any consideration of causation. Philosophy has gradually, since the time of Kant, 
confined itself more and more to talking about what appears in human experience. We can't know for sure what the things in themselves are, according to Kant, because we are trapped in human minds. We, 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 view the human, we view the world in terms of human categories. And so we can't really talk about reality the way it is in itself. We kind of throw that to the natural sciences and let them deal with it. Um, the problem with that is that sci- the sciences never really give us any clear definition of what causation is. They presuppose it. Scientists may have debates over whether causation is mechanical or whether it's merely statistical. They may have debates over whether causation can occur backwards in time, but they never really tell us what causation is about. Why does it need to do that? Why why should science tell us what causation is about? Well, it can't. Why should philosophy do it? Because causation is actually mysterious. Um, Heidegger is the one who showed that any time you perceive something, you're never going to perceive the totality of it. Right, the tool analysis. Uh, no matter what you see of a tool, there's always going to be some hidden background or depth in it that you're never going to quite grasp. If the floor collapses and I suddenly the floor becomes visible to me, okay, maybe the floors become visible to me, but there are other environmental factors that, we, that are not visible to me. If those become visible, there will be still others. There's an infinite depth in the world that never becomes totally visible to us, no matter what happens. Um, that's not only true for, for our theoretical awareness, it's also true for our practical activity. If I'm using things invisibly, if I'm using hammers, or using the door, or using a recorder, I'm still not using all features of those things, right? If I'm, if I'm using the recorder, there may be certain features of this recorder, such as strange smells that dogs or insects can pick up that none of us can because we don't have the right physical capacities. And so everything's hiding from us at all times to a certain extent. It's hiding from our gaze. It's also hiding from our practical activities. But then you have to push it a step further and say that things are also hiding from each other as well. Why? Because let's say you have a case, the classical case that began with Islamic philosophy was fire burning cotton. What happens when fire burns cotton? Well, the early Muslims said that fire does not burn cotton, God burns cotton. This is called occasionalism. Because created substances have no power of their own, uh, and so God has to intervene in every causal interaction. Well, I wouldn't say that, but I would say that when fire burns cotton... The fire is only burning the cotton insofar as it's flammable, right? So the fire doesn't have any access to the color of the cotton, the smell of the cotton, the relative softness of the cotton. So there are, there are many features that are ignored of objects in any interaction between objects, even if humans are not involved. Even if two inanimate things are slamming together, uh, they are hidden from each other to some extent. They only partially access one another. And so I think this allows us to uh, broaden philosophy again so that it's not just the kind of local discourse about what appears in human consciousness, but that it allows us to um, uh, talk about all of nature as well again, too, and not just let the scientists deal with it. And we have to do it in terms of, of this discussing causation, in terms of having something hide from it. Part of one object hides from another object that slams into it. And I think the fourfold structure of Heidegger gives us the resources to start uh, working on that problem. Uh, Okay, so I would say Heidegger's fourfold is important because it gives us its kind of unified field theory of art, science, and everything else. Anything that happens in the world is going to be an interaction of two objects uh, which are kind of torn in a duel between the unity of that object and their various qualities, and the objects are going to be partially related to each other and partly concealed from each other. And we're doing okay on time, so I'll, I'll cover the last three cards that I called optional. Um... More generally, what makes an object? What makes something an object? 
sometimes in the history of philosophy and the history of thought, objects have been considered to be uh, solid, hard, material things. That obviously doesn't work as a definition because there are plenty of objects that are not solid, hard, and material, such as, say, fictional characters, uh, mathematical constructions that I think we would all call objects. Um, often, philosophers in the past thought that objects were things that were internal or everlasting. I don't think that's really necessary either because you have uh, certain chemical elements that only last for millions of a second before they disappear, such as Californium. Uh, you have plutonium, which is a human-made element, but it's still an element in the periodic table, just like gold or mercury, even though it's human-made. So it can't, it can't be a matter of objects being natural as opposed to artificial either. So what are objects? The best definition I could think of for an object in general would be something that has a certain unity to it that can withstand certain variations on a surface. You could say that objects are different from their accidents, their relations, and their qualities. Uh, different from their accidents? Well... Am I still the same object whether or not I take these buttons off my sweater? Yes, I would say so. There are philosophies that deny that. There are philosophies such as those of Whitehead or Latour that think there's no such thing as an accident. Anything that you change, no matter how minor to an object, changes that object. Because you change, if you change any of its features, an object is nothing more than the, the sum of its features, the object has changed. You could argue that. I would say it's false. I would say there is something internal to the object so that you can, you can change some accidental things on its surface. Okay, an object and its relations. Well, I can, I can move different distances from all of you in the room, and I, I'm still the same person, most likely, no matter whether I'm one meter from you or three meters or five meters from you. If I discover that my brother is not actually my brother, that he, is, you know, he was adopted or I was adopted, this, uh, this does not necessarily change who I am in all respects. And then finally, you've got the difference between an object and its qualities. This is a little trickier, because an object needs its qualities to be what it is, but yet it's not the same as those qualities. Why not? Well, because first of all, those qualities have to be unified together by some principle. And second of all, because um, some of your qualities could be shared by other objects. So you can't be identified with them. So that's what I would say an object is. It's different from those. From those. An object is something that's, that's unified in comparison with its accidents and its relations and its qualities. All right, well, here's the final twist I want to add to the talk today, then. If you think about it... And this has just occurred to me in the last two months. The difference between an object and its accidents is time. This is what time really means. I'm increasingly convinced. Why? Because where, where does the difference between an object and its accidents unfold? Really only in, in our, our conscious experience. It's only in our conscious experience that we can make the mistake of confusing a thing with its accidental features, right? And assuming that something necessarily belongs to something when it actually doesn't. And it's also in our conscious experience that we, uh, we see things altering as the light alters or as their, their position in the room alters. Uh, as we see the accidents of thing, all, things alter, yet we still see a thing there that's remaining the same, even though there are these minor changes that don't make us think it's a different thing. And so I would say that difference between objects and accidents is time. Okay, what about the difference between objects and relations? I would say that's space. Because... Uh, space has been called by some philosophers, such as Leibniz, the system of relations between things. And that can't really work, because space is also the system of non-relation between things. If things in space were totally related, there wouldn't really be distinct spaces, if you think about it. Everything would kind of fuse together into a big relational system. Space is also the possibility of things being unrelated to each other. And so it's both the, the place of relation and non-relation between things. And so I would say the tension between a thing and its relation to other things is space. 
And that gives us one last difference, and that is the difference between an object and its qualities. Um, an, object, an object and its essential qualities, the qualities that it really has in the real worlds, even outside of our consciousness of it. And this means that along with time and space, we have to add a third term. People are always talking about time and space, time and space, time and space, as though there were, those were a unique pair, there was nothing else with them. It occurs to me now that time, space, and you have to say essence. Essence would be the term for the, for the difference between an object and its qualities. Because the say that a thing has an essence says that it has specific qualities that characterize it. And so you've got time, space, and essence now, not just time and space. And one, one actually, one last twist. Uh, I mentioned allure as something that's able to separate a thing from its various qualities and make the thing seem like it's visible in itself, apart from any of those qualities. So in a way, allure, or what Heidegger calls the artwork, is somehow interfering with what I've called time. It's an interference with the mechanism of time. And I have also said that causation is what breaks up that relation between a thing and its own qualities. So somehow causation messes with essence. Causation interferes with the functioning of essence. And this leads a third empty spot in the charts, which is what is it that interferes with space? What is it that interferes with the usual tension between things and their relation to other things? And whatever that third thing is, just as time, space, and essence would go together in my model, Artworks, causation, and this mysterious third thing would have to go together. And if you can think of what it is before I can, you can email it to me and you can get credits in the next book. Because <laughs> I don't have a term for it yet. And on that note, I will stop and open this up for any questions. I hope the Heidegger stuff was not too complicated. Part about the tool analysis is straight from Heidegger. Part about the fourfold is straight from Heidegger. The other stuff was all my own additions. It was clear where Heidegger was talking, where I was talking. This might be a tangent. Hmm. At roughly the same time that Heidegger was working on his origins essay, Walter Benjamin was also working on something about the age of mechanical reproduction. Um, Benjamin clearly was trying to get to grips with what was distinctive about the work of art of the 20th century, that is that we have to get to grips with the photographic reproduction of works of art. Were there any relations between Heidegger and Benjamin? Was that essay in any sense a conscious response to from Benjamin's side, I'm not sure. I know Heidegger. I don't remember Heidegger ever mentioning Benjamin in any of the 82 volumes or however many he's written. Um, as for Benjamin, maybe someone in the room knows Benjamin better than I do and can say whether he was responding specifically to Heidegger's work. I know, I'm sure Heidegger would have also been appalled by mechanical reproduction. Heidegger would have been appalled by Warhol and these sorts of things. Um, So, I, yeah, I don't really know from Benjamin's site. Um, I'm trying to... Th- wheels are spinning here, trying to see if I can come up with any more any more detailed response about what Heidegger would say about the aura in, in Benjamin's artwork. Well, Benjamin says that the, things lose their aura because of being mechanically reproducible. Um, I just saw an interesting uh, possible contrary view to that, which is like Günther Anders, who said that, in a way... 
we're not living in a materialist age at all. We're living in an age of a new Platonism because uh, things are being reduced to ideas. They're being reduced to blueprints and schemas for making them and reproducing them. And now you can even own a patent on an idea. You can own, so you can own a platonic form for the first time in history. Um, I'm assuming he said this somewhat positively, whereas for Heidegger this is negative. Things are being reduced to appearances, they're being reduced to stockpiles, uh, the world is being reduced to a zone for coal and lumber. Uh, for Heidegger it's always a pessimistic tone when he talks about these things. Um, Benjamin is also a somewhat pessimistic tone in that essay, not as much as Heidegger. But I, I, just, I, don't, I just don't know historically biographically what Benjamin had been reading around that time. I, I do know that he read Heidegger's stuff at an unlikely early date. Uh, he was reading Heidegger's doctoral theses and things like this. So he seemed aware of who Heidegger was. And so I would just hypothesize that he, he must have been... Do, do you know the exact date on Benjamin's essay? One version came out in 36. Okay. 36. Yeah. Well, Heidegger's essay was certainly covered in the press and I'm sure Benjamin, Benjamin was a very alert person. I'm sure he was aware of that. Um. Because just to pursue that, I mean, one obvious thing about Heidegger's essay is that um, there's, there's nothing that particularly indicates that he's writing in the 20th century. Aha, you're right. Whereas clearly Benjamin is trying to get to grips with what's been called photography's second revolution of around 1900. In a way, Heidegger addresses that stuff more in the essays on technology than he does here. You're right, this could have been written much earlier, at any time after Van Gogh, I guess. Mm. 1890s. Um, right, it's, it's in the essays on technology where Heidegger complains about how film gives us a false nearness and radio gives us a false nearness. But yes, whereas, whereas Benjamin's essay is very much localizable. It's really pretty nasty. That's true. Yeah, it's a good point. do have in common is they both have an anti-realist tendency in common. Right? There's nothing outside of what we perceive. I mean, phenomenology, there's not so much about distinctly social forces shaping things. Uh, it's more about perception. And so Husserl doesn't necessarily have to make any claims about language shaping how we see things, or society shaping how we see things. But he does say that any question of reality is grounded in how we perceive things. Uh, also, Husserl had a kind of absolutist streak to him. Husserl was an old-fashioned, mathematically inclined sort of person who thinks there are ideal truths. Husserl thinks, for example, that uh, the laws of Newton were always true even before we discovered them. They have an ideal validity. Whereas for Heidegger, that makes no sense to say that the laws of Newton were true before they were discovered. It's only the discovering of them made them active as laws. And so I think Heidegger is more the social constructionist than, than Husserl, which is odd because Heidegger is also a little more of a realist. Heidegger leaves room for a real world in a way that Husserl does nuts. But that real world for Heidegger always requires human Dasein to be one of the ingredients. 
um, it wouldn't make much sense to ask he- for Heidegger to ask him what happens if a comet slams into a planet 500 light years from now and no humans hear about it. He would say it's nonsensical. A human Dasein is the, is the root of all truth. Um, see, I, I, would, I would assign Heidegger the social construction aside, though, more than phenomenologists. I don't think it has to be society for them. In the context uh, of your talk, I wonder whether there's anything you could say about um, the way that Merleau-Ponty takes some of this forward. Um, and what I'm thinking of specifically, whereas Heidegger, in the work about emphasizes strife, one of the things I seem to get from Merleau-Ponty is uh, developing the notion of a kind of intimacy with Earth, or intimacy with uh, things in a way... Um, and I just wondered whether you have any thoughts about that. Yes, I do. I, I think one of the reasons Merleau-Ponty is able to focus more on intimacy is I think that Merleau-Ponty is also lacking this real-world dimension that we find in Heidegger. Because for Merleau-Ponty, as much as I love him, wonderful writer, uh, says that there are no things in themselves, there are only things in themselves for us. And so what he's really talking about is Husserl's objects, images, things that are within consciousness, and uh, are somehow in a, in a kind of tension with their qualities. And so, yeah, it, it's possible for us to be more intimate with those objects from Merleau-Ponty because they are there before us already. What Merleau-Ponty is really wonderful at describing <laughs> is how there is no such thing as qualities that we then bundle together into a unit, the way that empiricism thinks. Uh, he says that a black, the black of a pen is different from the black of a shirt, even if they're the same exact wavelength of color. That it's somehow the qualities are attached to and influenced by the object of which they are a part. Those are not real objects from Merleau-Ponty. He's, he's a phenomenologist in the Husserlian mode, more than a Heideggerian, I would say. Um, whereas for Heidegger, there is that room for those deep, dark, hidden objects that are not part of consciousness at all. Um, but you're right, that does give him the disadvantage that it's, it's more straightforward, that there's more of a, a conflict, whereas for Merleau-Ponty, there's a warmth to it because the thing is already there. Merleau-Ponty is the one who really seems at home in the world compared to Heidegger. Um, you feel comfortable when you're reading him. It's very nourishing to be Merleau-Ponty. He's not so alienated from these veiled depths. Graham, yes. You've uh, suggested that Heidegger's uh, notion of the uh, the work of art doesn't quite work because it could be used for any other object, right. basically. Um, wouldn't you say then that you know some of the recent trends in art, where sort of any mundane object is now being considered as art, that in a way that uh, sort of justifies it, or, or it uh, sort of fulfills uh, that insight, perhaps that you know you can have Tracy Emin's unmade, uh, unmade bed, or um, you know any old thing now um, is, yeah. uh, can be art, <laughs> is art, and. Uh, those distinctions are sort of falling away. Wouldn't that be ironic if, if those recent developments in art somehow were used to justify Heidegger's theory, knowing that he would hate that kind of art, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I can't imagine Heidegger liked the urinal very much. Um, okay, maybe anything can be an artwork. That doesn't mean that everything is an artwork, right? I mean, some, some act of specifying it as such has to occur, doesn't it? You don't just walk around saying this is all art. Maybe somebody finds a clever way to turn this into an artwork, but something has to be done to make that happen, right? Um, 
And so I think it's, it's just not very useful for, for Heidegger to use a concept such as strife that we find everywhere. Um, he falls into this problem a lot in this philosophy, by the way. Um, so he, he will say things such as, all human Dasein is thrown out into the, noth- into the nothingness. But that's especially true for Greeks and Germans, of course. Right? So he's got this problem there, which is Derrida comes along and, and always picks on, justly so, that uh, he's trying to use it both as a universal structure and as a kind of measuring stick. That, oh, everyone's thrown out into the nothingness, but some are more thrown out into the nothingness than others. Uh, all human dealings with the world rise above the world to some extent, but that's more true of philosophers than, than anybody else for Heidegger. Um, and so I think he's having the same problem with strife. That he wants to say strife is a universal thing that's everywhere at all times, and yet, not only in artworks, but especially in great artworks, the ones that Heidegger himself likes, this happens all the more. Um, so I, I would still think that you have to specify something as an artwork for it to function as such. Yeah. Well, would that then, then suggest that uh, a work of art is a broken tool? Um, if, um, or, or that it has to be uh, something with breaking tools? If, if, if it's the broken tool that makes the invisible visible, or, or, or suggests uh, suggests that something that these kind of hidden dimensions, um, would would, um, would there be um, you know some sort of par- parallel between Heidegger's notion of the broken tool and uh, what uh, the work of art? There has to be a parallel, but the work of art has to be more, because again, the the broken tool covers way too much ground. Essentially, anything that's visible for Heidegger is a broken tool, because you know, if I look at something, I'm already objectifying it, turning it into a caricature. I'm simplifying it down to a small number of features. I'm seeing your shirt from this distance. I'm seeing only certain aspects of its color. I'm, I'm ignoring the smell and the texture and all these other qualities that it has. And that's that's true for him of anything that becomes visible. And again, it's hard it's hard to claim that that counts as artworks. Then, unless you want to claim that everything everything is an artwork. But when you when you said that a second ago, I think you meant more than that, right? You meant that anything can potentially be made into an artwork. You didn't just mean that artwork means the same as anything perceived. Although the Greek word, aesthesis, doesn't mean both, although it means perceived and then it's become aesthetics. Um, sorry, I lost, I lost the original uh, yeah, question. Well, there was just a notion that, well, you know, would uh, an institute of art, um, an art institute be, you know, engaged in breaking tools, basically? <laughs> 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 Is that what it, uh, you know, yeah. entails? To be an artist, uh, you go around breaking things. Yes. Well, in a sense, in a sense, you are. Right? You're, in a sense, you're breaking the usual functioning of things. But I would say you, you're doing the same with your eyes, and even animals are doing the same thing. Because Heidegger is pretty clear in one passage that any any becoming visible works the same way as a broken tool does. Because a tool is, by definition, for him, whatever remains invisible and can be relied on. And as soon as it becomes visible, it's in the realm of broken tools. And there's another example, because that's also true of everything, and yet Heidegger wants to use it for the specific example of tools, even though it's also true of things that are not tools in the narrow sense. So he's always got this problem where he's trying to set up a general opposition that then becomes a specific one that judges specific entities. That's right. Oh, yeah. So, what is essence, What is... What is essence to you? Because you say there's a difference between the thing itself, an object, and quality. Yes. You can't have the thing. Uh, 
the essence of a thing would be whatever it really is, even when we're not perceiving it, apart from our relation to it. And uh, why do I think it's there? The essence has come under a lot of fire in recent philosophy. There aren't so many defenders of it anymore. I think it's necessary to defend it, because I think Heidegger's tool analysis proves to my satisfaction, at least, that there is something there in the things more than what we see of them. Things are always failing and always surprising us in ways that we never imagined possible. So there has to be something there. And you could say that there's just this big inarticulate lump out there called the worlds, and that by dealing with it, we break it into parts. This is what some philosophers say. I don't think that makes any sense. I think things have to have an individual identity for us to be able to, to deal with them in individual ways. And so a thing must have an essence. It must have a specific set of qualities that characterize it compared to other things. And how is it? Okay, it's, you're right. It can't survive the removal of all those things. But then again, I can't survive the removal of all my relations either. I have to have some relations. It's just that none of them are essential. I can be in different relations to people. But if, if I lose all my relations, then I'm dead. And even then my body would have relations. Um, but you're right. The essence is different in the sense that you can't totally subtract it away the way you can the other things. Thing needs this, those qualities. It needs its essence. Yeah, that is one big difference. Whereas the relations and the accidents are more dispensable. Uh, yeah, but to say that there is an essence uh, is different from saying that we can ever portray it. Exactly. Yep. And uh, yep. there are some um, uh, versions of phenomenology that trying to portray essences or trying to say them or summarize them. I don't know if you have any comment on that. I do. I think. I think. Uh, Postmodernism has picked up on Heidegger's term ontotheology. Ontotheology is the idea that the ontology is the, the science of being, and theology, you know what that is. Ontotheology is the tendency in the history of philosophy, according to Heidegger, to take one specific kind of being as the highest, most important one that explains everything else, whether it's atoms, or God, or the soul, or matter, or power for Nietzsche, or whatever. Uh, Heidegger criticizes this. Heidegger thinks that you can never set up one specific kind of thing that explains all the others. This would be a kind of reductionism. You need to talk about the mysterious interplay between the hidden and the visible. That's all you can do according to Heidegger. And Derrida really picked up on that, as did others. But I think they made a confusion between ontotheology and realism. I think that there's two different problems. It's one thing to say there's a real world, but that doesn't mean we can necessarily ever portray exactly what the real world is. I think a lot of the people who criticize the anthropology want to also criticize realism and say there can't be any real world out there. It all can be produced by us. I don't see why that's the case. It's very easy to say there is a real world we just can't ever quite get at. I think that's what Heidegger is saying. And if you take away the real world, you run into all kinds of problems in philosophy. It's, been the tendency, it's really been the tendency since Kant for 220 years. I think it's starting to flip around now. The fashion's going to go the other way. We'll see. But that's, that's my sense. The real world is making a comeback philosophy. Reality is fashionable again. Have you, Graham, have you got any comments on, I was just thinking of links from what you were just saying there about the real world. I was thinking of the, the virtual world, the digital world, and yeah. what Heidegger would feel about network arts and things that, you know, the thingliness of something that doesn't actually exist, but it, it kind of does, you know, but in a virtual world, whether it's a hollow holograms are slightly different, but yeah. you know what I mean, kind yeah. of computer-rendered uh, figures and, and so forth, um, and how that links back to what David was saying about Walter Benjamin and things like that, you know, in terms of mechanical reproduction, and now we're in the age of digital reproduction. Right. I'm sure Heidegger would detest all that stuff. He was very much an anti-technology curmudgeon and barely liked to use telephones, uh, barely liked to type. Um, 
This is also a guy who got in a lot of trouble for saying that, that uh, essentially that all forms of technology are about the same. He, he mentions uh, the manufacture of corpses and gas chambers is fundamentally no different from mechanized farm, uh, mechanized food production on farms. And so he has, sometimes has a problem distinguishing between different kinds of technology. As far as uh, d- digital simulacra and video images and things of this sort, I'm sure he would hate it because he, for him an artwork has to be an object. There has to be some depth of earth there. Whereas he would say that something just digitally projected on a computer is merely an image and there's no depth behind it. Right? There's no real world behind it. No, he wouldn't say real world, he'd say earth. There's no earth behind that. Um, whereas maybe Merleau-Ponty would be more positive about this stuff. It would be interesting to know what he'd say. If he had lived a bit longer, he died pretty young. If he had lived another 20 years, as he should have, he might have seen the, the cusp of that video art. Um, Heidegger, I have no doubt that he would, he would be appalled. Not that we have to listen to Heidegger. Um, I... I, I I don't know if people know Baudrillard's book on uh, well, several wonderful books, Fatal Strategies and Simulacra and Seductions. What I like about these books is that, on the one hand, he's the one who's, who's most thought of as the philosopher of unreality, right? Everything's just a simulation. Nothing's real. Everything's a digital hologram. And yet there is a very strongly realist flavor to Baudrillard's books. You feel like you're in contact with objects there, somehow. And I think it's for the same reasons you feel that way with Husserl. Because Husserl's also bracketing the outside world and saying, we don't know if it exists or not. And yet you're still able to circle things, and they have a resistance to your gaze, and they have a density. And, and so you really are amidst objects in these philosophers in a way that you're not if you read, say, Hegel or Kant. These are not people who are going to describe apples in detail, and what, you know, how does the light change when you rotate the apple. Whereas in Merleau-Ponty, you've got all kinds of wonderful descriptions like this. Uh, so there is something really object-oriented in these people, even though they don't have a real world. So it is possible. It's possible to deny a real world and still focus on objects. But objects for us... This is what Merleau-Ponty talks about, the thing in itself for us. I think Heidegger is just adding another another level of that with the real world. Um, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking uh, there's somebody, I mean, my background and specialist is in, in film, film studies. Yes. Do you know the work of uh, somebody called Vivian Sobchak? No, I don't. She's written a lot of stuff using Merleau-Ponty as uh, the kind of how we experience and sense film. You know, we've got yes. the projection of something and extend this to uh, how we engage with digital art and objects that don't actually exist but the way she talks about it is, is well those things might be projections, they might be simulacral or whatever you want to call them but the important thing is how how they make us sense and not just in an emotion she talks about how she recoils from certain things and a great moment in uh, one film where they, uh, it was a fiction film um, Contact, where they used um, actual uh, footage of Bill Clinton um, when he was actually president, uh-huh. um, but in a fictional context. And she talks about this moment where everybody's immersed in, in, the, fan- in the fantasy, the fiction, and then when, when he appears and it's an actual news conference they co-opted, they, people start shuffling around and become aware of themselves in, in the seat. And they uh-huh. become very much aware of themselves in relation to the film, the artwork they're watching. Uh-huh. So there's, there's all of that kind of thing, and I don't know whether there's, there's something there that... Um, I mean, you might just say Heidegger just wasn't interested in that, and that uh-huh. art has to be something that you can... It's an object that you can touch, and that's yes. malleable. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something in the way that art kind of... Is, you know, has an impact on and shapes us, I think. 
this perhaps where, where we're going in the 21st century. He certainly wasn't very experimentally inclined in his tastes. He was very old-fashioned in his artistic tastes. Um, I didn't know about this, this Clinton thing. This sounds very interesting. So he took a, an actual footage of Clinton and re-inscribed his, in a fictional story. Yeah, the, the film is about... Um, it's the Robert Zemeckis film, uh, Jodie Foster, about um, uh, life on Mars. Uh-huh. And, uh, what they did was took a Clinton press conference where he was, he was talking at NASA about a Mars space probe. I see. So it's him talking about Mars, but they co-opted <coughs> the fictional thing. It's a bizarre moment. I've seen the film, and it is a bizarre moment, because, you know, for the American audiences, and could be Sobchak's American, she, she was saying it's really strange, because everybody suddenly, a minute, I saw that on the news last week, <laughs> that kind of thing, and it, it kind of broke the, the, uh, the, the, the fantasy. You know? right. and, um, but she talks about it in terms of not just that, which is a reasonably banal thing to say, really, I suppose. Um, it'll be interesting in some respects. But it was how, how it kind of changed the way that the audience were relating to the artwork they were uh-huh. engaging with, you know. Kind of a code uh-huh. switch, or whatever you call it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm not sure how to make sense of that in a Heideggerian framework, but it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. It's, it's a nice strategy. Well, it, yeah, I think they, they were aware they were still watching a fiction film, but they just suddenly thought, you know, something odd going on here. They, they remember, you know, it its non-fictional status hadn't worn off. Which is slightly off, off the point of what, what Graham's talking about, but I suppose it's just that, that sense of how. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it is, you know, if you encounter something in the real world and then suddenly somebody, yeah. and you have a, an everyday use for it, and somebody yes. says all of a sudden, you know, this is art. Yes. It's, there's that sense of, oh, I'm watching a fiction film, yeah. and all of a sudden it, it has a non fictionality to it. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a similar thing going on, I suppose, in a. What I would say, that's what you're here for to tell me. You just reminded me of the most devastating book review I ever saw, which was of that Alan Bloom closing of the American Mind book, this kind of denunciation of how American universities are going now. Because the, the preface to that book was written by Saul Bellow, who's a Nobel Prize winning novelist, because he's a friend of Bloom. But the reviewer deliberately treated the book as though it were a novel by Saul Bellow about an evil character with no intellectual integrity named Alan Bloom. It's a, he does a masterful job of portraying a sinister character who will do anything to get his ways in, in university politics. Somehow, t- treating a real book as though it were a fictional novel undercut the entire book. I, it, you just reminded me of that when you talked about reinscribing Clinton footage. Uh, how does that... Okay, I mean, how did you... Um, I'm just... I'm drawing a blank when I try to think of what he would say about that specific example. If anyone has any thoughts about that, um, no, it's it's a wonderful example. It's just so unheideggerian in its tone that I'm having trouble yeah. translating my mind to that place. Because he's dealing with very conservative, well-known artworks, great classics. That well, that's the interesting thing that it's the challenge for, for everybody. You know, some people are working in very conventional and traditional forms, but that, you know. The, the challenge of technology, and there is a challenge to take what Heidegger was saying and, and 
update it, as it were, which is something you would do very well, and mm. it's a challenge for everybody else, you know. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, to take away. Mm. <laughs> so following on from that, one thing that was um, going through my mind was the um, famous um, Jameson essay of the mid-80s that tries to characterise postmodernism. And he sets up a contrast between modernism and postmodernism, and then has two images as emblems. And he has Van Gogh's boots as emblematic of the modernist moment, and then Andy Warhol's diamond dust shoes as emblematic of the postmodern moment. Now, reading that, it never occurred to me that this might be some kind of engagement with Heidegger. Uh, is it? Jameson certainly would have been aware of, of all that. Um, it could be. Um, so what would be specifically modern about Heidegger's treatment of the... I'll put the shoes back up. Just for, um, Would there be something specifically modern about the strife of world and earth and world as a model? Um, I guess an easy answer would be to say that modernism might still be stuck on the difference between reality and appearance, whereas postmodernism is bringing it all to the level of appearance. That would be an easy way to deal with the difference between this and Warhol. Yes. Um, yeah, I guess you could say that. You could do that. Um, And then you could classify any of these simulacra or video images as also postmodern just for that very reason, that they're not referring to an outside world. Is that really enough to characterize postmodernity? Maybe. Uh, in that case, Heidegger would definitely be opposed to postmodernity, as we figured he would anyway. There's got to be that darkness and that shelters and harbors and veils and it seals. There is that reality there for Heidegger always. But it couldn't uh, have been an accident that Jameson makes so much of this image. I think you're probably right about that. He must be doing that as a nose tweak of Heidegger, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, he must be. I would agree with that. What about Warhol, though? I wonder if Warhol possibly had been... Well, he would have been probably more engaged with Van Gogh than with Heidegger. I, I don't know that he knew Heidegger's essay. But, um, that would be truly interesting if Warhol were snubbing Heidegger de deliberately with... That work. I really uh, well, yes, I'd always thought of it as a conscious challenge to Heidegger. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I'm going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Oh, yes. that, that passage that you read, uh, yes. that where, where Heidegger was uh, interpreting the, the, this uh, work of art, I mean, your, your ultimate conclusion uh, that, that you drew uh, was about the uh, the essence of objects that, that withdraw from us, and that they are being such a thing as, as a withdrawn right. object. Mm -hmm. um, but that uh, passage uh, also seems to have suggested that actually this very object, in fact, already contains in itself, so the whole world in, in a sense. I mean, it was saying things like, when you look at this, you can see the peasant woman, and yeah. you know she's going to work, etc. And actually. Uh, uh, Quite the opposite emerges in the sense that it, it uh, points to sort of fundamental rela relationality that everything is in, in a way connected or that uh, perhaps 
and I'm wondering about this distinction he's drawing between what an object is and what uh, a thing is. Mm -hmm. That a thing is a relational thing. That a thing is um, some sort of. A, and I'm sort of referring to Bruno Latour's notion of you know quasi objects and yeah. so heterogeneous network. So if this what you see through looking at a work of art, that it's a heterogeneous network and um, connects a certain way of life and uh, you know makes us understand uh, certain types of. Uh, Reality. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, this uh, this type of uh, relational or Latourian approach that uh, points to a very different types of uh, objects. Objects that are huge, complex, heterogeneous. They are <coughs> massive networks yeah. that are that would be the world. Well, the first thing I should have said is that uh, object is always a negative word for Heidegger. Object is what our consciousness reduces things to, by reducing them to systems of qualities, invisible things. Thing is a more positive word for Heidegger. Things are about what harbors and jumpers and conceals, and a jug of wine holds the wine. And, uh, those are things. Um, and you, you were pointing out that in the passage I read, there's a certain relational structure to the shoes. Yes, because he says, the two sides always contaminate each other. The earth is always jetting out in the world, and the world is built on the earth. He says... And somehow these shoes bring the whole world of the peasant woman before us. Yes, that's true, but it's also true that insofar as these shoes belong to the earth, they have to be unaffected by any relationality at all. He even says that in this essay, and he definitely says it in the thing essay. The thing just is what it is without any relation to us or any relation to anything else. It has a certain power to it. And so, yes, insofar as the thing is visible, it belongs to a system of relations, which is interesting because for Heidegger... Tools always belong to a system of relations, even though the tools are what's invisible. So there's a sort of conflict here on two sides of this philosophy. Heidegger actually goes so far in being in time as to say there's no such thing as a tool, because they all take their meaning from each other, and so the world is just fused together into a big system, and it breaks into parts only when the, when the tools break and become visible to us. So Heidegger does sometimes seem to think that the world is a big lump when we're not looking at it, and only humans break it into parts, which Latour is now doing too with this plasma that you've pointed out. Um, Whereas, right, in this case, it's that when the shoe becomes visible as worlds, then it's linked to all of our sufferings and the walk through the fields every day and all of this. Um, so it almost it becomes relational when it becomes visible. Yet, so other times for Heidegger, to make a thing visible theoretically is to strip it of all its relations. So I think there's a real, a real tension here in Heidegger. Uh, is the concealed world relational or made up of individual things that don't relate? And is the visible world relational or made up of things that have been abstracted from each other and so don't relate? He says both things at both times, uh, both of those levels. So I think it's hard to map sometimes what he thinks about this. Yeah? Is there any significance to uh, using the word tension, uh, whereas, say, someone like Gadamer mm -hmm. would use the word play? Mm -hmm. Is there a difference in nuance in those two terms? Yeah, there is. I guess I wouldn't mind saying play, though. I don't think I have anything invested specifically in tension. Um, Heidegger also uses play a lot of times. Uh, there's a play of light, play of light and shadow, or a play of. There are a number of places in Heidegger's works where he does that. I'm, I'm just trying to. Do some introspection here and see if there's any reason why I prefer attention that has any philosophical cash value. 
No, maybe I just like that sense of turmoil in the things. Um, I, I, I'm just as willing to use the term play. Another term I've been using lately is another classical term, emanation. It's you've got, back in Neoplatonism, you've got emanation. So it's, you know, the normal meaning of the words, you cook something, the smell emanates off it. So it wasn't, you weren't cooking the food in order to get the smell, that's just an emanation off of it. Well, in a way, this, you can say the qualities of the thing are emanating off of it, because the thing itself is there, no matter what colors or shapes I'm seeing at any specific angle. Uh, so they're emanating off of it in a way. And in a way, the qualities of the thing are emanating off of it. And in a way, the image I see of this podium is emanating off the real podium. It's, it's, I've been calling it emanation. You could call it play. You could call it play between two levels. Yeah. And I think in a way, Heidegger gives us the resources for the first time to think about all these different types of play, to build a system of philosophy out of it. And it just it interested me the first time that I saw that in a way, artworks function as the visible analog of, of cause and effects on the invisible level. Um, I still don't have a term for that third play. So it makes no yeah. I was just thinking about the term essence and truth and how, how you saw those two relating. Yeah. Um, for Heidegger, truth is unveiling. And so you could, truth is not correctness. It's about... Um, it's not about perfectly modeling the thing outside of us with a copy. It's about you, you're only gradually getting closer and closer to the truth. You're approaching it. So this is why it's hermeneutic philosophy, because you're always going to be interpreting. You're never going to be in a position of having a privileged knowledge of things. You're only going to be asymptotically approaching the real worlds. Um, and so you're never going to be able to model the essence completely. The essence is always going to be hidden from any attempt to relate to it. Um, my actual, my favorite account of truth by any philosopher is Bruno Latour's, where he called, he says we should have an industrial model of truth. We should think of truth as a series of translations, just like if you think about how does the oil buried underground in Saudi Arabia get into a gas tank in France in a car. There is a series of six or seven translations you have to follow. First, it has to be drilled and then pulled up out of the grounds. I don't, I don't, I don't know much about oil refining. What happens? There are many different steps, and then it has to be shipped to France, and finally, it's able to be burned in a personal automobile, and the tour makes the claim that that's really what truth is like. You're, you're translating things from one step to another, always retaining something essential. And so it does sort of resemble, the gas in the tank in France does sort of resemble the underground oil in Saudi Arabia, but not completely. That would be this kind of crude, lumpy, black mass. It couldn't fuel anything. Um, it, had to, it had to do various things to it to make it usable. So I, I like that even better, I think, somehow, than, than Heidegger's model. But... Um, Essence for Heidegger is definitely something that's never going to be attainable. But it is there for him, whereas for Latour there is no essence. The thing only is what it is right now. I think everything's on the surface for Latour. There's no hidden, veiled reality. Uh, even though I wouldn't want to say that there is. Latour's on my mind because he's going to be responding to my book about him on Tuesday in London, and I don't know what he's going to say yet. So um, hopefully he's friendly about it. Could you say something about um, Heidegger and National Socialism? Yeah. Interesting you mentioned that because this essay wasn't too long after the National Socialist period. Heidegger, 1933-34. Uh, Hitler came to power in 1933. Heidegger became rector of the University of Freiburg in 1933 and stayed on for about a year. And there's been a lot, of, a lot written about this. His friends say that he showed Nazi sympathies as early as the late 20s or 1930 at the latest. And sometimes you'll get people blaming it on his wife who did seem a bit more intense in her sympathies for the Nazis, but he's obviously got to take some responsibility for that. You also can't blame it on his background. Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, he's just a rural country boy who didn't know any better. It's not true. If you go look at his hometown, 
they consistently voted against Hitler in larger numbers than most of the rest of Germany. It was a stronghold of Catholic centrism, not at all a pro-Nazi town. So this was a, a deliberate adoption of, the, of Nazi uh, ideology on Heidegger's parts. He has to take responsibility for it. Um, there are different versions you could, you could give of what, what the process was by which Heidegger either distanced himself or failed to distance himself from the movements, the Nazi movements. Looks to me like what happens is he saw quickly that within about a year that he wasn't being taken as seriously at the high levels of the government as he thought he was. He really thought that he was going to be able to ride that wave and completely reform the university system. And in Heidegger, you don't find the crudest sort of kind of ra- uh, biological racism. It's more of a spiritual racism. Right? You, don't, you can't imagine Heidegger saying some races are genetically superior or inferior to another. This would not fit with his philosophy. This would be the mere presence at hand of reducing people to physical bodies and DNA. Uh, you can't find that in Heidegger. That's, that's directly contradictory to his philosophy. What you find, the kind of uh, cultural prejudice you find in Heidegger, say, against Jews, is not a, not a physical one. It might be a cultural one, where other the Jews or someone else might be mere city dwellers who reduce things to the mere availability and have no spiritual depth. This, this is the kind of Nazism you find in Heidegger. Not the really crude kind that Alfred Rosenberg exemplifies. Um, and if you look at Heidegger's punishments after the war, I think it was about right. Um, if you compare Heidegger's punishment to that of Rosenberg, who was hanged, or Carl Schmitt, who was thrown into jail, political philosopher, what happened to Heidegger really is he was simply classified as a fellow traveler and he was denazified. He was forbidden from teaching for a number of years at the university. It was probably right at about the right level of punishment. I don't think he deserved jail. He wasn't really a, a major force of the movements. He was a fellow traveler is a good phrase. He was with him part of the way. I think he, he never lost some of his sympathies for some aspects of it, but he was not the worst of the kind. We might have expected a bit better from him, but uh, there are many worse cases in German academia. He, uh, he did have there's an interesting parallel between him and Edith Stein, who was Husserl's assistant right before Heidegger was. Uh, Edith Stein is now a saint. Uh, she was gassed at Auschwitz. She was Heidegger. She's a little bit older, older than Heidegger, I think. Uh, she was she was Heidegger's uh, Husserl's assistant right before Heidegger was. She became bored with the job. She had a religious conversion experience and became a Catholic. And uh, when when the Nazis took power in Germany, they tried to find her safety at a convent in the Netherlands. But eventually, after the Germans invaded the Netherlands, she was shipped to Auschwitz died there and was raised in the sainthood. So it's an interesting parallel to what happened to Husserl's two great assistants. She was a very talented phenomenologist in her own rights. And now she's Saint, what's her name? Saint, uh, Saint Teresa of the Cross, I think. So many intense ideas. I hope you found it as stimulating and interesting as I have. And thank you so much for your interest and for coming. I noticed as well that the refreshments trolley sort of snuck in. Oh, did it? And I think oh. we, we're having a little reception here. So please, please, please do feel free to approach Graham and carry on with some of your questions and ideas. Um, thank you so much again, Graham, for your generosity.